let's pray again just briefly. Father, we ask you that your spirit would make real to us the things from your word this morning. Lord, everything else aside, that we would see your son Jesus more clearly. We would have a clearer, firmer grasp on who he is and what he looks like and what Christ in us means for us, what that looks like in our life too. In Jesus' name, amen. In the Old Testament, the book of Ruth, sort of a, it's a good hangout for a lot of people because in the Old Testament, often confusing for folks, this is a short book, and it's clear, it's an easy storyline, it's really a lovely story. And in that, in the, the story of Ruth, Naomi and her husband and her two sons had left the country, the nation of Israel, when there was a famine and they'd gone to the neighboring country of Moab because there was food there. While they're there, Naomi's husband dies. Her two sons marry, but her two sons die. So this widow Naomi has two widows for daughter-in-laws. And so she's heard that there's food again back in Israel, so she's going to go back home. And as she heads back, she tells her daughters-in-law who are following her, headed back to Israel, she tells them, look, gals, you know, love your thought, love your love towards me, but I've got nothing more to give you. And in this time, in this culture, you really need a husband, and I don't have one to give you. So you guys, you need to go back. You need to go back to your country, your family, and your gods. You need to go back to where you've grown up. And so one of them, Orpah, does. She returns. It's with tears, and, and, but that's what she does. She goes back. Ruth's response, very famous, very well known. If you haven't heard any other verse in the book of Ruth, this is probably the one you've heard or remember. It's often used at weddings, though, though its context has nothing to do with romance. This is from one young woman to another older woman. And when Naomi has said to Ruth, Ruth, go back. Go back to your family. Go back to your home. Go back to your culture and your gods with the hope that you'll find someone like you in Moab, a new husband that will take care of you. Ruth famously responds with this, Don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. There's probably no clearer text in all the Bible that paints a picture of someone making a key strategic decision to say, I'm going to leave what I was to embrace something new. I'm leaving everything I was and knew and had behind and I'm embracing an entirely new identity and culture, and in this case, God. A new God. You remember, we're in Colossians 3, and we'll be there again this morning. Paul had told Christians like you and me, young and old, he'd said that we're called to put off old things, old sinful lifestyles, thoughts, attitudes. Put those off. And we talked about seeing ourselves in the context of an immigrant, that we're leaving an old country, an old dark kingdom behind. And that kingdom and our being in it represented our sinful lifestyles, our life before Christ. Put that off like Ruth did here. And she's going to go to Israel and embrace this new country and culture and values and God. And that's what we're called to do as Christians. We're going to put those old things behind, Paul says. But then we're going to have to put on new things too. We don't just leave something behind. We have to have something to embrace. And that's what Paul's going to talk about this morning in Colossians 3. We are going to be content heavy, and I'm going to sort of slowly 
methodically, but as quickly as I can, work through the text this morning. There's a lot of content, so take what you can and we'll call that good. We are in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. Paul's already spoken about the language of putting off, and now he's going to talk about putting on. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So first, hopefully you have a steady sheet there in your bulletin. First, Before we talk about what we're called to put on, who's this addressed to? Who's called to put something on? This is important, and don't go any further until we've settled this question. Who is called to put on Christ's character? Because as we see, that's actually what we're called to put on. Christ's nature, His character. This is to those who are chosen, holy, and loved by God. That's who's called to put on Christ and His character. Those who are chosen in Christ, holy in Christ, and already loved by God in Christ. And I say this to this end. A lot of times for Christians, we read the New Testament and we treat it like the Old Testament law. That is, we see a series of commands and we try to live up to God's standard and somehow in our minds think, if I can live up to these standards, if I can keep these commandments, then I'll gain God's approval and God will love me and I'll grow holier. See, and that's exactly what the New Testament does not teach. If we treat the commands in the New Testament given to believers like Old Testament law, all they will do is condemn us. And we won't feel holy, and we won't feel loved, and we won't feel chosen. So we need to come to this understanding. Paul's saying to people who are already chosen in Christ. They're already holy in Christ. They're already loved by God. That's the starting ground. That's what we've already covered in chapters 1, 2, and 3. That's where we start. So what we don't want to tell ourselves, if I keep these commands, I gain favor with God. You don't. If I keep these commands, I I get holier. No, you don't that either. If, If I can live up to this standard of Christ, then God will love me more. Nope, He can't love you any more than He already does. This is written to Christians. And this is our starting point. We don't work for any of that. That's where we start. So the commands here are to those who are already chosen in Christ, already holy, already loved. And now Paul is essentially saying this. Since you are an immigrant, since you've left an old life, an old country, an old dark citizenship behind, since you're in this new kingdom of light, live like you live in that kingdom of light. Since you are already in Christ and Christ is already in you, let the truth of that be borne out in your life. 
this is a huge concept in the New Testament, and I'm convinced that our church, the church, especially in the West, is as anemic and spiritually impotent as it is, as we are, because we fail to do just the very simple things Paul talks about here in Colossians. We fail to put off our old sinful nature and put on the new creation life we have in Christ. Friends, our old sinful nature, it's sinful and it will never get any better. And when we look at ourselves and say, someday I'll be a better person, no, that old sinful life, it'll never get any better. You know what? It just corrupts more fully over time. It's like a corpse. All it can do is rot. And God says, the only thing I do with that old sinful life you, you brought to me, I crucify it. I, I put it to death. That's all it's good for. And that's what we've already had in Colossians. So don't forget that. We have been crucified already in Christ. Who and what I was, it's already gone. That's the putting off. We have a circumcision. Not a little bit of skin that's cut off from us. No, our whole former life. That was Colossians 2. It's been cut off. We have a new life in Christ. So, Paul is addressing new creations. Christians who have that new life, have the Spirit within us. And now he says, live true to your new creation status. Okay, that's all we're talking about. Non-Christians can't do this. If you don't know Christ, these commands are not written to you. The Gospel is written to you, which says repent of your sins, of your alienation from God, and accept Jesus' substitutionary death for your sake. And you'll be born again, and you'll become that immigrant. You've left the old dark kingdom behind, and you've embraced the new kingdom of light. And then we start living like citizens of that new kingdom. This has nothing to do with gaining God's approval. You don't get holier. You are holy in Christ. That's our starting point. So we don't want to mistake that. So, what are we putting on? That's the second point on your study sheet. Verse 12. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We've put off the old, and now we're going to put on something new. If we think of it as immigrants, we're leaving that old dark kingdom and we're embracing the new culture of God's kingdom. Another good analogy that's helpful is to think of clothing. I've taken off some old clothes. They were dirty and scuzzy and they didn't fit well. I, I trashed those and now I'm going to put on some clothes that fit me just perfectly. When I was a young guy growing up, I grew really quickly. And I'm mostly arms and legs, as you know. And so I really got frustrated because I was going to one store after another to try and find shirt sleeves long enough for my long arms, and it was, it was an exercise in futility more often than not. When I found a shirt that had sleeves long enough, it was like, ah, yes, this fits. This fits me. Well, us clothing ourselves with the character of Christ, it's like us putting on a garment, a, a jacket or a coat or a dress or a skirt, and it's a perfect fit. When we put on the character of Christ, it's a perfect fit. There's a great description of this in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. You'll find it in chapter 3. You can look at that later. It's, it's a great visual reminder. But prophetically, the prophet Zechariah sees Israel's most important, holiest man, the high priest Joshua, standing before God in the courts of heaven. Now this is the holiest guy on the planet, right? Because he's the only guy that can go into God's presence in the rebuilt temple once a year. This is Joshua. This is our man. He's the best we have. And yet as he stands in God's presence, Zechariah looks at him and he realizes 
his clothes, they're filthy. Because that's Joshua's sinfulness. That's what he brings to God. His clothes are filthy. Now this is inappropriate for God's high priest, don't you think? And so God says, you know what, let's take care of that. And he gives Joshua these new, bright, clean, white clothes. And Zechariah is so jazzed when he sees this, he says, would you put a clean turban on his head too, Lord? Yeah, we'll do that too. And so Joshua goes from being clothed in his own filthy rags to having this clean, white, perfect righteousness. He can stand now in the courts of heaven appropriately dressed. And once that's happened, then God says to him, walk in my ways, keep my charge, rule my house, have charge of my courts. I've clothed you with my righteousness, now you go about doing my business. And that's what we're talking about here. We already have the righteousness of Christ, and so God says now to us, now get about my business. Put on my son and get with my program. This topic is so important, and you'll see it repeated over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. So let me just refer to a few of these. In Romans 13, verse 14, the thought of I put off and I put on. I put off the old, I put on the new. Romans 13, 14, Paul says it like this, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul turns the order here, but it's the same thing. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, put off your sinful nature, put off your sinful disposition. In Galatians 5.16, he says it this way, walk by the Spirit, that's put on Christ, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh, that's putting off the old. Ephesians 4.22-24, we've mentioned Ephesians as a parallel epistle written about the same time, many of the same themes and wording. There Paul said, Put off your old self, that old sinful self, that old identity. Put it off. It belongs to your former manner of life. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. Our old nature is and never will be corrupt. It never gets any better. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So, we're called to put off the old, and now we're putting on the new. A theme repeated through Scripture. And this is what we're called to put on. The first one, Paul says here, is a compassionate heart. A compassionate heart. In the Greek, this is a little more graphic. This would be bowels of mercy. We change these words, you know, when we translate. So we're trying to make it appropriate. So we in the West tend to think of the heart, but no, not in the Middle East. They thought of it as in the gut, the bowels. So really this says put on bowels of compassion or mercy. And the thought is it's what you feel right in the middle of who you are. You know, some of us, if we get a sudden fright, we, we might feel sort of tight in the chest or we might feel sick right at our stomachs. That's, that's what we're talking about. It's what we feel down in our gut. Isaiah 49.15, and most of the verses that you'll see referenced this morning, these are verses that talk about the character quality as God displays it. So this shows us what it looks like. If we put on Christ, we're talking about putting on His character. Well, what is that character like? Well, these verses speak to that. In Isaiah 49.15, God said, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. 
God takes the epitome, sort of the best possible example of what is the best of human compassion, bowels of mercy look like. And God says, well, it's a mother. It's a mother who's carried a child in her womb, intimate connection, commitment, painful delivery. And the mother takes that little one and nurses it at her breast. She's giving that infant her own life, you know, both in her belly and nursing. Right? It's this intimate, personal connection, this sense of compassion. Well, God says that compassion, good as it is, God-given as it is, that pales in my compassion, in my mercy towards you. Because a mother, she can forget her child. It's possible for that bowels of mercy to fail, but my mercy will never fail. Think of the best sense of mercy, the best illumination of that in your mind. God says that will fail, but mine never will. Bowels of compassion. This is a sympathetic consciousness of others' distress with a desire to alleviate it. So, bowels of compassion. He says, put on. Put on kindness. Kindness here means moral goodness towards another person. This isn't nice. This is kind. Moral goodness towards another person. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians 5.22, listen to this from Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. Again, these are God's characteristics that we're told to put on. So in Ephesians 2, Paul wrote, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Why? Why did God raise us up in Christ and seat us with Him in the heavenly places? So that, for this purpose, in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Did you know that one of the key reasons God reached down and saved us, Jesus died for us, so that God could demonstrate His moral goodness towards others. In that sense, believers are trophies. We are display items, if you will, to God's kindness, to His moral goodness. I love this. God doesn't save us because we are worth saving. He saves us to display His own goodness. And that's better. If it's up to us, we're in trouble. If it's up to God and His character, man, we've got a chance, don't we? God saves us because of His moral goodness and He puts that goodness on display eternally through our presence with Him in heaven. You see the same thought in Romans 2, verse 4. It's God's kindness, His goodness towards us that leads us to repent and embrace Christ. That's God's goodness at work on our behalf. So Paul says, put on kindness, this moral goodness expressed towards others. Paul says, put on humility. This is a humbleness of mind. This is a readiness to put yourself beneath other people for their sake, to serve other people at your expense. There is no passage in the Bible that speaks more clearly to this than in Philippians 2, verses 3-8. through And it describes that step-by-step process in which God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, left the glories of heaven, took on our humanity in the Incarnation, walked as a man on the earth, went, went lower than that, became a servant, went lower than that again, died as a criminal on a cross. Why did Jesus do that? Why did He humble Himself and humble Himself and humble Himself? He did that to serve our need. To save us. There is no greater display of humility in the universe and can't be 
than the one that was very God of very God, fills the heavens and the earth, created all that is, and He leaves all that glory behind, takes on our humanity to serve us. That's humility. Jesus was humble, and that character trait of His, we are called to put on also. That we're willing to take the low spot to serve the needs of others. Just talking about the need for volunteers in the church. What a great passage to think about. That we humble ourselves when we're willing to serve little kids in Sunday school. Or come early to set up chairs. We're, we're taking the low spot to serve others. That's Jesus' example here. Put on humility. Put on, He says, forth meekness. This is gentleness. This means we don't grasp things for ourselves. We don't shove ourselves to the front of the line. This is also one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. James 3.13 talks about God's wisdom in the terms of meekness. God's wisdom is meek. God's wisdom defers to others. It gives others their way when it's possible to do so. That's meekness. That's God's wisdom includes meekness. Matthew 11.28, a great verse for us when we're feeling weighed down by whatever's going on in life. Jesus there famously said, Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. Why? Well, because I'm meek. I'm gentle. And I'm humble. And you'll find rest for your souls. It's that meekness of Christ that actually comforts us. That we can come alongside and receive comfort from Christ because He takes that all on. He's not about what can I get out of it, what's in this for me. He's there for us, meekly serving us. Put on meekness, Paul says. Put on patience, he also says. The term patience doesn't, doesn't say near enough. We would say better long-suffering, and it's a term I think maybe King James may still use. Long-suffering, the term here does mean literally to suffer long. To put up with something for a long time without complaint, without retaliation, without bitterness. Put on patience. The passage in Exodus 34, verse 6, God's displaying Himself to Moses. And Moses had had a tough day. He'd come down from Sinai with the law, and he sees Israel has already broken every one of them. And he throws those, the book of the, the, the stone elements of the law down, breaks them up. He's having a tough day, and he tells God, Lord, I just want to see you. And so God says, well, you can't see my face, but this is what I'll do. I'll put you in a cleft of the rock up here and I'll pass by. You won't see my face, but you'll see me. And so he does. And when God walks by and Moses sees him, God also declares what's true of himself. Moses sees him and that's helpful, but God tells Moses, this is what's true of me. This is who I am. And he says there, the Lord, the eternally existent one, I am, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is slow to anger. He puts up with us for a long time. He suffers us for a long time. You know, do we get irritated immediately when someone does something we don't like? That's exactly the opposite of this. Slow to anger. Patient. Long-suffering. So, I'm going to skip 1 Peter 3.20 just to try and stay on track here. Paul says, put on Christ's character, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We need to understand these are not commands of external do this or don't do that. These are internal character qualities. 
And this should be true for all of us who know Christ as Savior. This should be true for all of us. We don't have to be wealthy to clothe ourselves in Christ's excellencies. We don't have to be intellectually astute to know the depths of Christ's humility. We don't have to have the most spectacular spiritual gifts to display Christ's graces. This is true for all of us. doesn't matter if we're young or old in the Lord. doesn't matter what our spiritual gifts are. doesn't matter what our background is. This should be true of all of us. This is putting on Christ. Once we've put on Christ, once we have Christ's character, uh, what do we do? What are the works that we do? See this in verses 13 and 14. Paul says, Bear with one another, forgive one another, and above all these, put on love. So he says, you've put on Christ's character. So now bear with each other. Accept each other. Suffer long with each other. That's the decision you make with Christ's character. We decide to bear with each other. By the way, almost everything Paul's talking about in this context, it has to do with the way you interact with other people. That's the way we interact with each other and at home with family and with friends and people at work and school. This is the way we interact with each other. It defines whether we've put on Christ or haven't. We accept others. We bear it with them. We forgive each other. We don't hold others' sins against them. He says above all these we put on love. Think of a cake and you put all those ingredients in and then you cover it over with icing. Well, that's what we're doing here with love. Those character qualities, they're all there. They're the cake. And the cake is together. But now we cover it all over with this tasty icing. Love. The acid test of faith, friends, is not what we say. It's not what we say. It's what we do. It's what we do. So, Ask yourself, if I've put on Christ, it's going to affect what I do. If it doesn't affect what I do, I haven't put on Christ. I haven't put off the old. What do I do? That's the acid test. Those who put on Christ do bear with the faults and weaknesses of others. I'm just going to reference one of the verses in each one of these categories. Let me look at 2 Peter 3.9. Peter was addressing the question, Hey, uh, I thought Jesus said He was going to come back. Where is He? It's been a long time. Where is He? And Peter says, 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord isn't slow to fulfill His promise. He's patient. He's bearing with the sins of the world so that more people will hear the Gospel and be saved. God is patient. God's putting up with sinners. God's a holy God. This, this requires Him to exercise forbearance, long-suffering. Why does He do that? Because He wants people to be saved. God's doing this today. Those who are walking in the Spirit are forgiving each other. Psalm 86.5 says, You, O Lord, are good and forgiving. God is forgiving. And when Paul tells us to be forgiving, we've put on Christ, now we choose to forgive. He says, forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. How many sins that we've committed is God holding against us? Zero, right? None. Our sins are all dealt with on the cross. So how many sins are we at liberty to hold against someone else? Zero. None, right? Because our forgiveness in Christ is the measure by which we turn around and forgive others. Christ in us forgives. You know, if you say I can't forgive someone else, I have no problem with that on one hand. I get it. 
And you know why? It's because my sinful nature doesn't forgive other people. So if you say I can't forgive, I'm with you. I can't either. Christ in me forgives. And that's what we're talking about. This is Christ's life. This isn't the old life. This is the new life. Christ in me forgives others. Called to forgive, Christ forgives. I'll just mention Matthew 26. When Jesus talks about I'm instituting this new covenant in my blood, it's for the forgiveness of the sins of many. My new covenant is about forgiving sins. Christ in us forgives others. And then those who look like citizens of God's kingdom make love their first and last priority in everything we do. You know, it is impossible to do any of this or to put on Christ in any significant way without putting on love, that chief character quality of God Himself. 1 Corinthians 13, love is the greatest character quality. It's better than any spiritual gift, better than any other achievement in life. It's to be loving. 1 John 4, 8, by His very nature, God is love. Above and below, before and after, put on love. That's the thing. You guys doing okay? Okay. Uh, Christ's attitude, uh, peace, he says in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and also be thankful, Christ's peace rule in our hearts. The thought here is that the very real quality of Christ's peace in us is like an umpire that says we're safe or we're out. We're doing right or we're missing the mark. Christ's peace in us is to be an umpire that helps us understand we're doing right or we're not. And again, remember in context, this has to do with our relationship with other people. Many times we'll say to each other, I don't have the peace of Christ about this or that decision. Let the peace of Christ rule in my heart. And we use that about decision making. I don't have a problem with that, but that's not the context. That's not the major application. The application here is in my relationships with you and your relationships with me. I'm going to be absent Christ's peace if I'm not treating you right. And you're going to be absent Christ's peace. The umpire that is Christ's peace in you is going to call you out at first if you're not living in peace with others. When I was a brand new Christian at K-State, I was in the dorm one day. I'm, I'm a superior sophomore that year, I think. And a and a lowly freshman guy comes into my room and he says something. And I already knew that he had thought too highly of himself. I knew that, you know. And he sticks in his head in and says something. And I just took offense right away. I was ticked. And I just spoke out of my anger right in the moment. You know, I let him have it. He walks down the hall, goes to his room. I'm a brand new Christian. I don't know up from down, but I know this. I don't feel right inside. I feel gross. I feel unclean. I feel such that I've got to go down the hall and apologize to that guy. And so I did. I just went down and I said, I was out of line. I am really sorry. Please forgive me. And he did and it was over. And I went back and my heart's right again. And I have peace again. But it was so clear. Listen, sometimes in life when you don't have peace, ask yourself, Lord, am I right with people around me? Because... Christ's peace in us will say to us, you're doing okay or you're not. You spoke in a way that was totally disrespectful to your spouse or your child or your parent or your friend. And Christ in us will not be satisfied with that. We'll lose peace. And to get that peace back, we go and we do right by that other person. 
The context about the, let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts is relationship. It's not decision making. It's relationship. Also, be, be careful just on point of application here. Because our communication about others affects so much, before you uh, push send on an email, I'm not sure how we do this on Twitter uh, or Facebook. Sorry, I don't know the right button to push. But, or, or a speech with someone else or about someone else. Uh, before we push send or speak, give yourself a pause to say, do I have Christ's peace about what I'm saying? What about, about what I'm sharing? with this person or about this person? Do I have Christ's peace? For me, this is a really helpful just pause to say, sometimes I say, you know what, I shouldn't send that. I'm cringing inside as I'm thinking about what I might say. I think that's Christ's Spirit at work saying, that's, don't do that. Don't say that. That wouldn't be helpful. Sometimes I'm not sure why, but let Christ's peace. This is a bit subjective. But if we're walking by the Spirit and trying to please God, uh, we'll get this, okay? So let Christ's peace rule related to relationships with other people. Uh, the heart that reflects Christ is always thankful. I won't develop this. We've talked about this in the past. I will point this out. Jesus was expressing thanks to His Father when He prayed, when He ate, when He worshipped, and when He suffered. In every venue of life in the Gospels, you'll see Jesus giving His Father thanks. Thankful hearts was part of Christ's character. It should be true of us as well. Let me move to this last point. Uh, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. I'll, I'll keep myself short here too. I will say this. The, the term here, dwell in us, <clears throat> is graphic and it really helps me. Let God's Word have its home in you. Are you and I, are we a home for God's Word? That it richly lives in us. Does God's Word richly live in me. Not a little, not a trickle, but a lot. We talk a lot about reading the Bible, guys, and I'm afraid it, it comes out wrong sometimes. You know, if I just say read your Bible, it's like, duh, what? You know, but if you say no, the Bible's alive, it's God's Word, I meet God there, and He shows me all kinds of crazy, wild, life-changing stuff, that's a different thing. So we are called to be a home for God's Word and it's richness. It enriches us from the inside out. It overflows us. And it's only when that's true that we can then teach and encourage and admonish. That means give a friendly warning to someone else. Others. See, we're called to interact verbally with each other in that way, a way that builds each other up. Paul says we can't do that if God's Word isn't living inside of us richly. Let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. Uh, Matthew 13.52 is a great verse for this. Every disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household and he brings forth from his treasures things old and things new. You know, I learned things in the Scripture 30 years ago. Those are my old things. And once in a while I'll bring them out. But you know, I'm learning new things today. So if God's Word is alive in us, we've got old things that we learned a long time ago. We've got new things that we're learning today. And when we get together, we should be excited about what God's showing us. We should be excited about what we learned five years or ten years or ten days ago that we can share with someone else. It would be helpful to them. Let Christ's Word dwell in us richly. 
Now, I want to leave you with this mind-blowing one because this is mind-blowing to me. Christ's song in us. So let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Do you ever think of God as a singer? Does God sing in the shower? God's a singer. God sings. Jesus sings. God sings. Do you you buy this? See, I, I have to have somebody prove this one to me. This sounds out of place. God sings. I wonder what that sounds like. So, singing psalms, that's, that's the book of psalms. That's the songs in the Bible. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Does God sing? Because we're talking about putting on Christ. Does Jesus sing? Does God sing? Really? You know what? He really does. Let me start with Psalm 33.1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O ye righteous praise, befits the upright. We talked about putting Christ on as like a Garment of clothing that's a perfect fit. Well, you go to Psalms and it says, you know what? Praise is a garment or it's an article of clothing that fits believers perfectly. It fits us. Now, Zephaniah 3.17 has got to be one of the coolest verses in all the Bible. Because this talks about God singing. So if you didn't know God sang, this is it, okay? Zephaniah 3.17, the prophet's talking to the nation. And reminding them that God's going to save them and it's going to be alright in the end. And this is the way he says it. The Lord your God is in your midst. He's right there with you. You're not forsaken. He's with you. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. God has all the power of the universe. He's going to save you. That's not in question. Don't worry about that. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He's going to throw you a birthday party. He's going to rejoice over you with gladness. He will Quiet you by, your, by His love. Are you, are you worried? Will you get next to the strong, powerful God in your midst? He'll quiet you. He'll, he'll steady your heart. He'll calm your nerves. But check this last statement out. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's Yahweh. Now this blows my mind. This says God in heaven sings loudly over His covenant people. I love this. God sings. He doesn't just sing. He sings loudly. You know, Jesus sang, Matthew 26.30, sang a hymn with His boys before they went to the Mount of Olives on that last night. You know, Hebrews 2.12 talks about Jesus singing in the midst of the congregation. I'll sing your praises in the midst of the congregation, He said. If we put on Christ, guys, we have a spirit, a a desire, an attitude that we want to praise God. If you find your praise on Sunday morning or any other time anemic, I can tell you safely you haven't put on Christ. If you tell me that singing really isn't your deal, I'm going to say, get a clue. God sings, Jesus sings, you better sing. Jesus sings in us. If we say Jesus forgives in us, well, Jesus sings in us. He's praising. He's a praising presence in us. There there is just no excuse for an anemic, lethargic church experience of praising God and Christ on Sunday morning other than we're wearing our old stinky clothes to church. We haven't put on Christ. Christ isn't in us actively. He's in us, but we haven't put Him on that day. We're not walking in His character, His nature. We serve a singing God. I love this. I wonder, maybe in heaven, maybe we'll hear it in the future. I don't know. I haven't heard it yet, but I'm looking forward to it. 
Let me close with this. In the story of Ruth, Ruth and Naomi have a problem because they're two single women at a time in the world in which that's not a good thing. And Naomi tells Ruth, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go up to our kinsman redeemer Boaz at night when he's laying there with the harvested grain and I want you to find him and I want you to take his covering, his tunic, his cloak, whatever that blanket is he's covering himself with, I want you to take it. I want you to cover yourself up with it. And Boaz will know what that means. And so she does. And Boaz knows what it means. And you see what she's saying, of course, is Boaz, I need you to redeem me. I need you to cover me up. I need your name. I need your wealth. I need your family. And that's exactly what happens. Ruth is covered by Boaz. She takes on Boaz's name, his wealth, his name, his family, his future, his hope. And of course, from Ruth and Boaz come Obed. And from Obed comes Jesse. And from Jesse comes David. And from David comes Jesus. And we should do just like Ruth did. See, I'm covered with this guy's mantle. His future is my future. His name is my name. His life is lived out in and through me. That's what we're called to do here. Put on Christ. Lord in heaven, thanks for Your Spirit that's in us. And Father God, would You honor Yourself by enlarging the the presence of Jesus in us. Would You help us to put off the old, put on the, the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh. Amen.